Great stuff. So our text this morning, um, obviously we've been in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we've called it the Mountain of Wisdom. And um, we're going to be through that, I mean, the three chapters, maybe by um, April, thereabouts. So we should be done. Um, so we've been looking at chapter 5 so far. And I'll, I'll just do a quick recap of where we're up to. Obviously, just last week, uh, I wouldn't go to the week before, just last week. So we, we talked about um, the law and the prophets. So we, we looked basically at um, verses 17 to 20 when Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? And we looked at, um, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophet. So we looked at the expression, the law and the prophet. We said that it's a technical term that captures the whole of the Old Testament, right? The law as in the first book of Moses and the prophets and all the writings. And so Jesus was saying that he has come to give the law its true meaning. He has come to uh, reveal himself as the, the real theme of the law. Um, so we look at the law and the prophet in that regard. Um, and then also we looked at the judge and teacher. Jesus said, he's not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, and that every detail of the law will not go unfulfilled. So we looked at our idea of judge and teacher, and by implication, Jesus was saying every word of the Lord is, is inspired. The, the dot on the I and the cross on the T is important. And so we said... What that means for us by application is that there is no cherry picking. You can't choose one part of God's word and not choose the other one because everything is important and it's from God. Uh, by implication, it also means that whatever God has said will come to pass. So you can actually stake your life on God's word. Because if he has said something as an encouragement to you this morning, you know that if God said it, they, that settles it. Because God's word cannot be set aside. Right? And then we looked at um, the fact that Jesus fulfilled the law. We've said that. Um, so that means a few things. It means that he has come to obey the law, which we could not obey. So he came as the true Israelite, fully obeyed the law, be, um, and is righteous. And his righteousness has been imputed unto us. We looked at um, a scripture, Second Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 21, um, you know, where... The Bible says that God has made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we can become all that God desires man to be in him. That's, that's one version, right? Um, KJV, New SV, uh, sorry, ESV or NIV will probably say, uh, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we can become the righteousness of God in him. But what that place is saying is that when Jesus came on the scene, he fully obeyed the law, he, he was the righteous one, and so when he died, there was an exchange where he took our sin and we were given his righteousness. So in Christ Jesus right now, everyone who has faith is considered righteous before God. So he came and obeyed the law. And then we also said that that means that um, Jesus came to fulfill the law in the sense that he's the theme of the law. We read a scripture, John 5, 39. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, these are the scriptures that testify of me. In other words, I am the sum total of all that the law and the prophet are trying to say. I am the fulfillment of it. And then we also said that Jesus meant that to say, he is the ultimate rabbi, the ultimate Jewish rabbi who came to um, 
give them an understanding of the law. And as we begin to see, Jesus begin to say to them, you have heard what I say unto you. In other words, I inspire the scripture. I'm the fulfillment of scripture. I'm an authority. I'm telling you what the scripture is saying. So whatever gaps you have in your understanding of, what is, of the scripture, I've come to fill in the gaps so that I can give you a true understanding of what was in the heart of God when he inspired the scripture. Are we still together? And then we looked at, if you go back to the recap, and then we look at um, the righteousness of the Pharisees. So at verse 20, Jesus said, well, except your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And we, we agreed that what that, that statement means, first and foremost, the Pharisees cannot enter the kingdom of God, right? And we gave the example of Usain Bolt, right? So it's like saying, if you don't make it to the finishing line, 100 meters faster than Usain Bolt, you cannot be qualified. So what you're saying is that Usain Bolt is not qualified. And so... The look on the face of the audience at the time Jesus was saying this was, <laughs> so who can make it to the kingdom? Because the Pharisees were the best. They were the experts in the law. As far as being able to comply to the law was concerned, there was no match. And so Jesus came on the scene and said, well, the best still falls short. And so you need a righteousness that is better than the best. And we agree that that righteousness is not human. It's not achievable by man. It is the righteousness of God which we receive by faith. Okay? So it's a free gift. But then also we looked at what the, Pharise- what the righteousness of the Pharisees was about. It was hypocritical. It was external. Right? And it was imperfect. And so Jesus was saying by implication two things. You need a righteousness that comes from God. And a righteousness that outworks itself not just on the outside but from inside out. Does that make sense? So he's saying that the righteousness that will enter the kingdom must be the righteousness of God, not self-righteousness. Isaiah says it's like filthy rags before God. It doesn't meet the standard. But then he's also saying that that righteousness has to be given you by gift, but then after it's been given you as a gift, it must be lived out. So it's, it's a righteousness that is from the heart and not external. I will sit together. Okay? Um, and so that's where we... We kind of ended it, right, last week. So today we're going to look at um, a few things. So what Jesus has done, basically, in uh, verse 20, is to give us a principle. He gave us a principle, right? And then he's going to continue to then give us some illustrations. If we go back to, um, if we go back to the principle and the illustration, I'll come back to this in a minute. So Jesus gave us the principle in verse 20. Yeah? Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's the principle. And so the subsequent verses, so from verse 1, verse 21 to 48, Jesus will now attempt to unpack that by giving us six illustrations, right, of what exactly he meant and the practicality of a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisee. Are we still together? Okay, so, so today I'm going to be looking at from verse 21 to 30, just two of those illustrations, right? Um, and so I've titled, for the sake of having um, something, right, to capture the whole point, and I've titled these, The Heart Matters. The Heart 
matters. Because that's the sum total of what Jesus is saying here. That God is looking for the heart, not just the external observance. Right? Are we good? Okay, so let's, let's, let's shoot them. So Jesus in verse 17 says, I've, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. And I think we touch on this briefly at Connect. That why would Jesus make that statement? Obviously, it meant that the audience, the Pharisees, the disciples were thinking. <laughs> right? They were thinking something and Jesus picked on their thoughts and basically disabused their minds of what they were thinking. For some reason, they must have been thinking that Jesus came to set the law aside, right? And Jesus said, no, that's not what I've come to do. Now, Jesus was a gracious man, you recall. Jesus would release a woman caught in adultery because he would ask all of them a question, which of you that has not committed any sin should cast the first stone? And then he would stoop, and by the time he's up, they'll all be gone. Jesus would eat, eat with tax collectors and publicans and associate with sinners. And so it was a bit of, what sort of guy is this? Okay, maybe he doesn't believe in the law of Moses. Maybe he's come to set it aside and at least reduce the burden of the law on us. Since he's some nice guy. And Jesus said, well, I've come to reveal God's grace. You know, the Bible says in John chapter 1, the law came through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus, right? And of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace, right? And so Jesus said, well, I've come to bring grace, but I'm not opposed to the law. And so do not think that I've come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And as we begin to see, Jesus is going to raise the bar of the law. Now, the point I want to quickly make here is that sometimes we feel that grace means lawlessness. That grace means we are without boundaries, that we have no rule over our lives. You know, the Bible tells us in Titus chapter 2, from verse 11, it says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. So a a correct understanding of God's grace does not make us lawless. Rather, it makes us uphold the law. Are you still with me? So grace says we are free, but it does not mean we are free to live anyhow. It means we are free to obey God. You know the story of Exodus? God sent Moses to the children of Israel or to uh, to Pharaoh. He said, let my people go that they may have a good life. No. He says, let my people go that they may what? serve me. So there is a liberation from bondage of sin and death, and then you are given another yoke of righteousness. Do you understand that? Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, come to me, all you will labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But then what does he say? He says, take upon you my own yoke. Do you understand what I'm trying to say here? So there is a liberation from sin, from death, from the devil, But then there is an enslaving, so to speak, to God. 
such that we are according to God's grace, not to live for ourselves, but to live for him. And so what Jesus begins to do here is to say, I have not come to abolish the law. Yes, I have come with God's grace. I have come with the fulfillment of all that God has always said to his people, but it is not saying that God's law is being set aside. Rather, I'm giving the law its true and full meaning. Have I lost you? Are you still here? Okay, awesome. Awesome. Okay, so let's go then. So Jesus versus the law, I think that's what I've, I've basically explained. Jesus establishes the law. It makes us understand that he's not against the law. You know, one of the questions I asked, um, we touch on in Connect is, how do you reconcile, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it with Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. When the Bible says you're no longer under the law, but under grace. Are those contradictory? No, they are not. Right? Now, a good scripture that we touched on in Connect, which I'm going to mention very quickly, is Galatians chapter 3. So the law had a purpose. The law was to make every man see himself as unable to fulfill the demands of God and therefore brought the whole of humanity to a point where we are helpless in ourselves because the best of us cannot make it, so we need a savior. The Messiah who will come and fulfill the law on our behalf and by faith in him will become all that God desires man to be. And then that same righteousness that he gives to us will empower us to live right. And so the law had a purpose. It was not supposed to be kept. It was supposed to show us our inability to keep it so that we can look to God for help. All right? And so this is what Paul says to us. He says, so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Not by the law, but by faith. It says, now that, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guidance. And so what Jesus is saying here is, I've not come to abolish the law, but I have come to relocate the law. So now we're not, going to be, we're not going to set the law aside, but we're going to fulfill it. And this is what's going to happen. I'm going to put my laws in your hearts. So you won't have to obey the law as an external code, but rather I will, by faith in me, now I will fulfill the law on your behalf, I'm the righteous one. You put your faith in me, now by putting your faith in me, my righteousness is credited to your account, but not just that, but I will also give you a nature of righteousness, and what that means is that my laws are on your heart, so that now you live from inside out by that law that is written in your heart, and not by an external code. Are you still in church? Okay. So, so Jesus Christ, and that is why Jesus began to say the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God. And then in these two illustrations that we're going to see now, you see Jesus owning in on the idea of the heart. The heart. So let's look at um, illustration one. Illustration one. So Jesus begins to speak about murder. Let's go back to our text, um, Matthew 5 from 21. Jesus begins to speak. Just go back to the text for a bit, and then we'll come back to this illustration, okay? So you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a neighbor or a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or a sister, Raka, is answerable 
to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of fire of hell. Therefore, okay, before we go into that, we'll come back to that in a minute. So let's, let's just stay at 21 and 22 for now. So Jesus comes here and says, well, you have heard, the law has said to you, you um, don't murder, right? And I'm sure that the Pharisees were like, yeah, we would do that. But Jesus now came to challenge that. Your obedience, your um, external compliance to the law is not enough. Because it was as though the Pharisees marked themselves as, you know, good. Because they did not externally kill or physically kill. But then Jesus came and said, well, that's good, but that's not it. Because your heart is also important. And then he says, and then it draws the law to its street sense or the spirit of the law and said, well, even though you did not outwardly or physically kill somebody, if in your heart you wish on dead, you are guilty of murder. So Jesus draws it away from the externality to the state of the heart. You see how he's raising the bar now? Because for the Pharisees and the Jews, they felt like, as long as I have not physically killed anybody, I'm good. And I've obeyed the law. And Jesus said, Mm-mm. the spirit of the law is that you don't curse someone in your heart. Is that you don't wish someone dead in your heart. And then Jesus now begins to speak about anger. And says, well, murder starts from the heart, essentially. And he says to them, well, anger is actually equal to murder. Because you, even if you don't physically slay someone, if you are angry with someone, then you have murdered. And then he says, he played on words. I don't know if you noticed it. Whoever says to his brother, Raka or fool is in danger. So I thought I would flag that. Anger, danger. There is just one letter, right, between the two of them. And it is true that when you allow anger uncontrolled, it will lead to danger. In fact, it is dangerous to allow anger to fester in your heart. Let's read a few scriptures here. So let, let me give you an example. If you remember what happened to Cain, let's, let's, do, let's do Ephesians chapter 4 very quickly. Ephesians chapter 4. The Bible says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Verse 27, And do not give the devil a foothold. What's Paul saying here? Paul is saying that there is such a thing as your anger giving the devil a foothold. In other words, you're so angry and it's so uncontrollable that you open up the door for the devil to strike. In other words, in your anger, you can actually do something not funny. And when you allow the anger to flow uncontrolled, untamed, the devil takes advantage of it. It's like you give him a foothold. You understand what it means? You allow the devil to step in. 
when you're, ang- when you're angry and you don't control it. And then you can actually eventually kill. Let me give you an example. Genesis and chapter 4. You know the story. story of Cain and Abel, right? So what happened? Two brothers gave sacrifice. One was accepted. The other wasn't accepted. And the brother became angry. Now look at verse 5 very quickly. So, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. God is the reference there. So Cain was very angry. And his face was downcast. You know that, that kind of anger that changes your, your physique, your, your visage. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Seven. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not what is right, sin is crouching at your door. God is saying in this angry stage or state, sin is crouching at your door. In other words, you, need, you might give the devil a foothold. He's at the door right now in this state of anger. If you don't control this very angry state, you are going to allow the devil in. So he says he desires to have you. In other words, he wants to take advantage of this scenario to get you. But you must rule over it. In other words, you must put it under control. Am I, am I talking to you, church? Yeah? Okay, cool. So, number, verse 8 then. Now Cain said to his brother, now apparently Cain did not listen to what God has said. So, verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. You see how the trajectory, see how it happened? He became very angry. He did not control the anger. He allowed the anger to take hold of his heart and he premeditated murder. Do you see what I'm saying here? And so Jesus said, murder actually starts with anger which starts in the heart. When it's not controlled, you open up the door for the devil and then you commit murder. Relationship with God is connected to relationship with people. Look at verse 23. Bring up the, the verse for me. Let's go back to verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother or sister has something against you, go on, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go to reconcile, be reconciled to them, and then come back, offer your gift. Let me see verse 25, what does it say? And then it says, settle matters quickly and all that. Because of my time, I'll skip that. But this is another point Jesus is making here. And that point is that your relationship with God is connected to your relationship with your brothers and sisters. Don't forget, it's coming from a place of anger, murder. And then he's talking about disputes. Sometimes what causes anger is that there is a clash. Something goes wrong 
and all that. We don't, we don't resolve it and all of that. And Jesus said, your vertical relationship has a connection with your horizontal relationship. If you are angry with your brother and your sister, you cannot worship. I want your worship, but I don't want the worship if you are not at peace with your brother and sister. So it seems to me as though in God's order of priority, if you are at the altar to offer a gift, and you, I love, go back to verse 23, I love the way Jesus said it. So, it says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and remember that your brother said, has something against you. So, you might not even be the one that has something against your brother and sister, but if there is the slightest hint or inkling that your brother has something against you, now, it's not you having something against your brother, but it's your brother having something against you. Did you see? You know, Hebrews chapter 12, I believe, um, verse 24, it says, um, as much as it lies in you, follow peace with all people. Say, so if, if there's the slightest hint that your brother has something against you, I don't know about you, but as a married man, sometimes things happen. And um, sometimes they happen on a Sunday morning. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? And it's time to go to church. Jesus says, settle quickly. <laughs> How do I minister to God's people? How do I minister to God when... My brother has something against me. Or my wife has something against me. Or I have something against my wife. On a practical level, you have to set to, like <laughs> when you are driving down. Something like that. Do you get what I'm trying to say? Because your horizontal relationship is, value, is important to God. Let's see a few scriptures here. You know, the other time we were looking at love lovers. Loving others, we explain that. But let, let's see a few scriptures very quickly. Look at First John chapter 4 and verse 20. It says, whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. So God is saying the litmus test that you love me is that you love your brother and sister. Now, it is not objective to say you love God and you don't love people. We talked about that before, didn't we? Why? Because people are in the image of God. You cannot see God, but you can see people. So if you hate the man and the woman that you can see, you cannot say you love God that you cannot see. And then look at the scripture. James chapter 3. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poisons. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. 
And with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Go back to verse 10. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. You see the point I'm making here? Whoever says to his brother, Raka, you blockhead. You know, the word Raka is an Aramaic word which does not exactly translate into English, but it is a word of contempt. You're so angry, you use words. You call your brother a fool. And what Jesus is even saying here to the Pharisees is that you say, when someone says to his brother, Raka, or fool, is in danger of the court. That is your human court. But Jesus said, well, I even say to you that he is in danger of hell. In other words, it's not just a sin against that brother. It is a sin against God who made the brother. Are you getting my point there? Now, let me say this. Every sin is a sin against God. Have you noticed that the law of God have sections that are vertical, directly to God, and then they have sections that are horizontal, directly to your humans? Now, when you flout that rule that is, that is directed to your brother and sister, you are not just sinning against your brother and sister, you are sinning against God. And so it is not just as easy as resolving it in your court of law. You must realize that it has a divine implication. Does that? Do you understand what I'm trying to say here? So the heart matters. And let's jump on the second illustration very quickly as I begin to round off. And then Jesus jumped from there. I mean, I don't have time, but we can go on and on from Scripture and see how out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And sometimes we get so angry that we use words. We call people names. And, and the Bible says no. And the Bible says Killing with your mouth is as guilty as killing with a sword. Second illustration, adultery. Very quickly, Jesus is trying to give us the idea of the heart. So he says that if you have been told, thou shalt not commit adultery, right? But I say to you, if you look at a woman to lust after, you have already committed adultery. What's the point? The heart. It is not sufficient to physically refrain. It is important that the state of your heart is right. Why? Because men look at the outward, but God looks at the heart. And we we'll discover that eventually, if you don't take care of the heart, you will act it out. What's the point? Your heart matters. All sins start from the heart. Guard your heart with all diligence. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart. The psalmist says, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Look at James chapter 1. 
He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to seed, and seed, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. You see that progression? There's a thought in the heart. A thought of lust, a thought of anger, a thought of bitterness that is not nipped in the board. It's allowed to grow and fester and it becomes the roots of outward things that you see. Let me touch on this. I don't have time to expound on it. Now, here is a wrong conclusion. I don't want us to make this conclusion. Since God looks at the heart, and thinking it in the heart is as guilty or the same as doing it, someone says, well, since I have thought it, I can as well act it out. Very smart. But that's the wrong conclusion. Why? Not all thoughts are your thoughts. Right? Do you know that the system of this world and the devil projects thought into your mind? Just like temptation is not the same thing as sin, right? So the fact that a thought came to your mind, what we are saying is not that you will not feel angry. What we are saying is not that you will not feel lost. What we are saying is that you will not allow them control you. And so it is not correct to say, it is not a right conclusion to say, well, since I have thought about it, and Jesus said, if you do it in your heart, you've already done it, so I can as well do it. That is not correct. And the reason also why that's not correct, number one is because your thoughts is all your all thoughts are not your thoughts, right? Because the Bible says to bring into subjection every thought to the obedience of Christ, right? Now, differences attract different penalties. I think this is important. In the church, sometimes we don't appreciate this, but I just want to mention that. In, in our world, this, is, this makes sense, right? The person that stole a loaf of bread doesn't get life sentence. A person that kills gets life sentence, right? Now, they are both offenders, but different penalties. Why? Because of the degree of the offense. So in as much as it is true that for entertaining lust in your heart, for entertaining bitterness and anger in your heart, because God sees the heart, you are as guilty as the person that has acted it out. However, it is not the same punishment. What do I mean? Am I saying sins are in degrees? Yes. Because it's in the Bible. Now, every sin is an affront against God. Every sin is wrong. But, not, but all sins don't have carried the same weight. I will unpack that another time, but let me just show you one scripture. Matthew 11. So I'm saying that it's not as simple as, oh, yeah, I felt it, so I can as well act it out. If you 
felt like stealing someone's car and you didn't steal it, you're okay. The policeman will not come and say, I, I, just, I just gauge your heart that you had an intention to steal and therefore, right, you go to prison. But then if you actually stole the car, you'll be in prison, right? Do you see the difference? Now, this is what Jesus said as I begin to close. Well, out of time. Now, so what to you, Chorazin? What to you, Bethsaida? Uh, Bethsaida? For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom, and, for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. What's Jesus Christ saying here? You had more exposure, more opportunities to accept God. You did not. You will not be on the same level. Can I... Jokingly say that some part of hell will be hotter than others. <laughs> but you get the point. Do you, you get what I'm trying to say here? So don't get into that wrong conclusion to say because I have taught it, I can as well act it. But back to what we're saying. Our hearts matters. Let's guard our hearts with all diligence. Proverbs 4. Because everything we do flows from there. Let's bow our heads as a prayer. Just say, say, say a quick word to God this morning. Lord, I, I want to maintain a tender heart. I want to maintain a tender heart. Maybe you've set your conscience and things that used to prick you no longer prick you and you feel like, oh, you know better that might just be a downward slope. Just say that quick prayer, Lord. I want to maintain a tender heart. I want the things that grieve you to grieve me. I don't want to get so comfortable and with things that are not consistent with your word, your righteousness, and your truth. Give me a tender heart once again. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, beyond what this, my free lips have been able to articulate, I ask Holy Spirit that as we go this week that you will just teach us. Help us to know where this applies to us individually so that we can make the right amends. But I trust that um, we will live in obedience to your word as your spirit helps us in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.